Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Lovely stuff. See, that's the thing. Whenever I feel like introducing these things, I always just feel like I want to do what Marcus does because Marcus is so effortless at it. Um, and he's lovely as well. Um, Plus, you don't meet many Catholics in football, or Christians, I should say. Uh, you really don't. There's there's a, a strong uh, anti-religion feel in, in football. I don't know why that is. Because it takes the place of religion, maybe. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe this is our introduction. Maybe this is how we start it. This it's is, just, this it is the intro right here. Effortless. Yeah, this is organic. If, if you are listening, this is the Front 3 podcast. Um, there's the two of us now, so it's two up top. The Front 2, uh, we're playing 4-4-2. Four, four, fellers yes wonderfully english uh and historical it's not a permanent thing don't panic i hear everyone say uh the other guys are occupied at the minute for a variety of different reasons so it's it's nico and i that will will try and talk you through things with a bit of preview and then a bit of q and a bit of a um the premier league is back is there a game that jumps out to you that's not arsenal tottenham because i look at Say AFC Bournemouth Huddersfield, and I think you know what that could be quite a good game. You know, you're right. That could be a really high intensity game because you know, as we've talked about before on the podcast, they are two teams that kind of like to go after it. They like to play some football. Uh, given the the the, um, the stature of both of the clubs, I think they'll both see an opportunity for three points. So I do agree with you, and I think that there is a game there. But what really jumps out to me, and I think this is pertains to you as well, is is Newcastle Manchester United. I think that could actually be a really good game for Newcastle fans. Why on earth would you say that? They've got Pogba back, and we've right. not got Moreno or Lascelles or. Okay, I didn't I didn't know about the in- injuries to Newcastle, but I think you know it takes some time to get maybe match fitness back for some of those guys, and I think Rafa Benitez, from what I've seen of him this season, and maybe you can talk about this a little further. You know, he has the right defensive temperament to stifle uh, a manager that maybe isn't as adept in attacking as you know like Mourinho I I think that's definitely a possibility yeah I like that thought actually Miguel Delaney wrote a nice piece for the independent about those two and why they don't like each other and and how they were once I don't think the word he used was relevant but I think he means like more I, I feel like the word he used was kind of more on the the front line of being innovators as coaches um, and I had this chat with Lawrence where like 
you look at Mourinho's arrival in England and he decrees himself as the special one. But tactically, has he ever done anything that's like really special or innovative? I don't I don't feel maybe the maybe Makaleli, maybe that is, you know, the I mean I, I think there's a conversation three. I think there's a conversation to be had there in terms of how we perceive maybe defensive innovation. And I was sort of thinking about that earlier this week in terms of like you know, we, we don't necessarily always like, you know, I've been watching a lot of NBA lately. And, and I think, you know, the criticism of someone like James Harden, for example, or Kyrie Irving in their defensive uh, in their defensive, you know, narrative, I guess, is that, you know, they don't defend well because they don't try hard enough. But I think there's a lot of the times there's so much of defending that we attribute to simply down that is down to effort that I think there is, you know, a genuine art to it. There's a genuine master you know, masterfulness to it, if that's even a word that I can use in this situation, like there is to, you know, taking on a player and scoring in that sense. Yeah, I, I did read an interesting piece. It was about Guardiola um, and the fact that the reason City sends to start so well is because you can hold concentration for like 35 minutes at its peak and then it starts to to dissolve a bit. And I think, look, you're not going to find anything vastly entertaining in what Rafa Benitez is putting out this season. But I do still think that there's a... Having seen the likes of Titus Bramble wear that shirt and see how devastating someone who can't concentrate is, I do give credit to those involved that they are able to maintain that for so long. And But for a few, you know, switches off or moments of, of uh, lack of concentration, for want of a better phrase... They they would have a few more points. I do I do think you're spot on though. I think Benitez will have a plan that has detail on detail on detail for this game, which is not to say that it works, but I feel like it'll be able to stifle Man United. And looking at the projected lineups, it looks like they think Man United are going to go four two three one. Although they think the same for Newcastle, and it's not been four two three one all season. It's been four four one one most of the time. And like I look at Mkhitaryan. And I found that interesting as well, is that a lot of Man United fans I uh, not so much engage with, but read, see, I think Dave's touched on this as well, is that Mkhitaryan's been in bad form. But for the first time recently, I've seen people talk about the fact that actually it's the absence of Pogba that is making Mkhitaryan bad at the same time. Is that something you can accept? I appreciate you will be accused of bias here, given your allegiances. But can you accept that Mkhitaryan is okay, not okay, but it's justifiable that he's not playing as well because Pogba's not in the team. 100%. And, I, you know, having watched a lot of Mkhitaryan previous to his time at Manchester United, you know, he, he's a brilliant player. He's one of my favorite players, and I was honestly devastated that he chose to go to Manchester United. But, yeah, I would 100% agree with that sentiment because I think, as I've talked about before, I don't think really Mourinho takes a whole lot of risks in the way that he likes to play football. And I think... We're seeing this patch of bad form from Manchester United because the the player that you know maybe is given the most freedom and and the play and you know the team depends on to construct a lot of their attack is missing and regardless of you know who that player is it is Paul Pogba in this situation and he is a world class player there's no getting around that so when you take that out of a team that doesn't like to take risks in the first place I think the poor form of other players, especially attacking players like Mkhitaryan, is definitely very influenced by by the absence of, of someone like Pogba. So yeah, I'm, I'm 100% on that on that thought. To play devil's advocate though for a second, he cost... 
How much did he cost? About 27 million. Is it acceptable to say that a player of that cost, of, of that perceived calibre, who was so influential for Dortmund in the Bundesliga, are we accepting that he can be so easily swayed by the absence of another teammate? Well, like I said, I think in in this kind of situation... Should, should, well, I think what I'm trying to say is, should he not be better? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in this situation, because Manchester United play in a certain way, like I said, maybe in our, our front three preview of this season, I don't necessarily... I'm not really of the mindset that Manchester United needed to make the transfer, some of the transfer that they did. It was more down to Mourinho evolving his football style because I think there were certain things that were achievable with the squad last year um, that were simply down to him not evolving as a manager. And like you mentioned before, he's not necessarily amongst the innovators of football ideas um, at the current moment as maybe he once was. And I think... Since since the team takes so few risks, and I've I've spoken to to Manchester United fans about this, you know, Mkhitaryan, he's in a difficult situation. He's certainly not doing maybe as well as some might have imagined in these situations. You know, not thriving in 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 you know his one on one take ons or or in situations where one might have imagined he would do well considering his performances at Dortmund. But I would say in a different team, maybe in a Pep Guardiola team, or if he was still at Dortmund, we would still be seeing the the Mkhitaryan that we knew before Manchester United. And really, it's kind of down to to Mourinho and his lack of ability to pander towards more complex attacking players like Mkhitaryan that you know is influencing his form. And I think right now, you know, we've seen the breakdown of. The relationship between Mourinho and attacking players beforehand, or I mean, in, uh, players of all position, but specifically attacking players. I think right now the way he's selling it to Mkhitaryan and what Mkhitaryan agrees with is that you know you have to do your work for a team, and the the, st- the statistical output in terms of goals and assists doesn't really matter. It's just as long as we win, and I think that that dynamic between the manager and the player who wants to achieve something on his own can only last for so long, and so maybe there there's the hint of of a future issue where you know Mkhitaryan wants to be the, the player that that he promises to be in in different systems and when maybe results aren't going towards Manchester United Manchester United's way you know further down the line I think the players start to start to grab a hold of that and say you know we want a manager that's a little bit more expensive we want a manager that does a little bit something different yeah, I think the ultimate positive is he's coming back at what is a key stretch in the season. I think if you look at Chelsea last year, this was really when they built the foundation for their title win. That sort of period from, I know it's mid-November now, but late October to Christmas, that was when they went on that stupidly long run that started at Hull. So I guess, I guess that's hugely um, important for them. The, the, the key thing as well, though, to look at this is Man United obviously kick off at 530 um, City could open a, a, a decent gap before they've even kicked a ball. Uh, well, before Man United have kicked a ball, I should say. I need to use my nouns more often. Um, they've got Leicester City, king of the counter-attack with Claude Puel. Um, live score, interestingly, are predicting a 4-4-1-1 for this one with Okazaki Alfari. Are you concerned about this game at all? Because to look at it on the surface... I mentioned there the counter-attacking, things like that. It's a big ask for Ndidi and Abora in the heart of that midfield against, you know, potentially De Bruyne, Gundogan, Silva, whoever lines up. But you would say that they've got some assets in their attack or their artillery that could catch City out at the same time. 
100%. I'm always worried about Leicester because they seem to embody the style that is diametrically opposed to, to that of Guardiola. And, you know, last year, the 4-2, uh, I think in the earlier part of the season, was a, was a perfect example of that. And I think things are a little bit different this season given um, given the way that the, the, I guess, the assets that City have in, in defense in terms of just pure athleticism and, and ability to provide numbers in defensive situations with um, with Kyle Walker and previous to that Benjamin Mendy and even Fabian Delfer Zinchenko can do a job um, at the left back or right back spot but I think I think in 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 this game I'm still worried about it but City have just been so good at breaking down teams that like to sit and I imagine Lester will sit that I if it were further along in Claude Puel's <clears throat> tenure as, as Leicester manager, then I would be more worried because, as I've spoken about many, many times, is that I, I'm very impressed with Claude Puel as a manager in terms of his defensive pressing. And I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, this Leicester, st- this Leicester side and, and the players at his disposal can do very well. But given that it's so early on and, and maybe they're still getting used to some of his um, some of his the things that he wants to perpetuate as a manager, I would say that Manchester City would still come away with this one uh, with a, with a heavy win. But you know, it, it's one to, to look out for. See, interesting. Looking at this thing again, they've got Fernandinho at centre back. I'm I'm not so much curious to debate that as a, a point, but more we talk about De Bruyne. I feel like Fernandinho has been very good as well, and I and I do feel as if he doesn't always get a huge amount of credit for what he does because it's it's carrying the piano more than playing it. Is that fair or? A hundred percent. And he's been a, a, a crucial player as a part of City's team for a number of years now, whether it be Pep Guardiola or Manuel Pellegrini. You know, he does a job in the team that is so understated. And the reason it's understated is because, it, it, you know, it's defensive positioning. It's doing certain things in the midfield that aren't necessarily sparkling or anything that you're going to admire at first glance. But his ability to transition from position to position, not just, you know, at the beginning of the game, like you said, maybe he's playing center back this game or whatever, but, you know, in the middle of a game where he can slide out to a right back position and be proficient, or he can split the center backs and build up the play. And he, you know, that that's probably the biggest um, piece of admiration that I have for him this season is that the buildup hasn't been if you look at Manchester City's build up and maybe juxtapose it to, to someone like Napoli it's not as good as Napoli's because the Napoli players are more confident and secure with what they're doing with the ball at the back the mm-hmm. City players that they use in the back four aren't aren't simply haven't been playing that style as long as those Napoli players because you know they they, they haven't uh, they haven't played out of the back as much and Kyle Walker's only been there for X amount of time and Fabian Delph has only been in that left back role for uh, X amount of time X amount of time as well and so a lot of that a lot of those harsh passes and a lot of those um, specific cutting passes that allow the team to transition in the, into the attack are handled by Fernandinho and his ability to sort of, I think um, they call Kevin Strootman at, at Roma the dishwasher because he can take a, a really bad pass and, and recycle it into something clean again. That's that's one of his names. And I think that that name would be perfectly fitting for Fernandinho because he does the same thing. He transitions Manchester City's defense to the attack extraordinarily well. And, and I don't think it's it's gotten enough appreciation. Yeah. See, that's the thing that Britain may looked at the striker first and was like, okay, who's Jamie Vardy up against, right, Johnson? But then as I study it a bit more, Riyad Mahrez against Fabian Delph, not to criticise Delph as a player, I think he, he is a very 
solid midfielder with good energy. But left-back is not his position. I think we can agree on that. This feels like one of the bigger tests for him. Um, and I feel like that could be a key matchup in this one. I mean, you've got Damari Gray against Kyle Walker on the other side. I would imagine Kyle Walker feels comfortable about handling, handling Gray, which is not an indictment on his quality, more that he has more experience than Gray. So you, you think he knows how to handle that kind of play. But I think, I feel like if Puel can funnel it down that right side... Man City's left, basically. I feel like he could have some joy, although at the same time, you've got Sane potentially on that left-hand side. And I feel like, to to quote some of the younger kids, he could do bits against Danny Simpson. Yeah, I mean, I've never used that phrase in in particular because I I just don't. But uh, I, I definitely agree <laughs> there. I, I <laughs> Mares against Fabian Delph is, is a matchup that I think he'll be licking his lips. Uh, looking at but it's sort of how you know maybe a midfielder comes over and helps and I think you know maybe I I take back my earlier statement that Manchester City come away with this one heavy winners because there's just a ton to exploit from a Manchester City Leicester perspective but it's difficult to ignore that that city attack as you mentioned with with Sané and and De Bruyne we will definitely clip up that heavy win bit if you lose Um, moving a little bit south yes Leicester to Palace's south. Palace have Everton at home. David Funsworth still trying to convince Everton that he's the right man for the job. And I feel like it's going to be vital for Palace that uh, the man Ruben Loftus-Cheek gets back from this back injury. I don't know at the time of recording if that's uh, likely. Um, I'd seen some social media posts of him training in a pool to try and get himself back to fitness. But yeah, I feel like without wishing to to diminish the rest of the Palace players. Loftus-Cheek is going to be huge in whether this team stays up during the season, is he not? Yeah, 100%. I mean, he's a he's a really gifted young central midfielder that I think not only has the ability on the ball, but as, as, as cliche as it is to mention, he does have the physicality to impose himself in, in a number of different situations. And I think he has the quality of the ball to make a difference for Palace and I or really a number of other teams that he can be included for. But it'd it'd be interesting to see how David Funsworth continues to try to steady the ship at Everton because, you know, looking at this one, it's difficult to to see what the plan was from Everton in sacking Koeman if they didn't already have a replacement ready to go. And I think Funsworth, he just, you know, he, he, he... is an interim manager and he doesn't seem like someone that's going to be able to take charge of the club for an extended period of time. So I think the more time they spend without a consistent idea, the more time that they're going to suffer and palace are looking for results. So I have to imagine that this is a game that the, both the players and the manager imagine that they can get three points from. And I, I actually think it'd probably be a good game because of that. Yeah, I agree with you about Loftus cheek. I think the other thing that really plays, into his and Palace's hands is the way they're going to play. Because I got to see a lot of them when they were beaten at Newcastle. And that was the tightest of margins, that game. Um, I wouldn't say Palace were absolutely battered or deserved to to really even lose the game. In fact, it was Loftus-Cheek that came on as a sub and produced their best chance that if Van Aanholt had been a bit switched on for, they might have got a goal and, and taken three points. But... I do. I feel like he's he's just got everything they need. 
And at the same time, he's probably going to go back to Chelsea at the end of the season and then potentially push for a first-team spot, whereas I'm not sure if we were thinking that at the start of the season. Everton, by contrast, and you alluded to this with uh, your, your answer there before, it's not that they seem a mess to me. It's that they don't seem as if they have clear vision and ideas. You look at that squad now, and I'm looking just at projected lineups again here because it's a decent indicator. I've got a front three, great podcast, of Wayne Rooney, Sigurdsson, Calvert-Lewin behind Umar Nias. You've also got Davy Clarsen in there. Let's throw Idrissa Gate, Tom Davies and Schneiderlin. How on earth do you fit, not all of those players, but how do you make a functioning attacking set or quartet or whatever out of that group of players as someone that plays football manager extensively and tells me he's very good at it i'd like you to try and solve the everton equation for me i mean it's really difficult and i'm looking at something that uh an analytics person a part of the chance analytics team ashwin raman um you know built or you know data visualized this week and and it's basically a chart that says how many passes does it take for your team to take a shot and without you know being uh ridiculous about the answer the 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 team that takes the most that takes the most amount of passes to take a shot is by far and away Everton followed by Southampton and this then West Ham so it, it's been sort of difficult I think for Everton fans to truly watch their team this season because like you said I think they lack a clear and concise idea with what they want to do as a team they're not particularly defensive minded but I think they they want to go forward and attack the issue is that they don't seem to have that many players that will ab- that are able to deliver any sort of quality into the final third. And I think part of that problem is that a lot of the attack tends to stem, stem from Wayne Rooney. And I-, I just don't think he has the legs and really the quality anymore to provide a, a consistent and impactful uh, you know, measure upon upon the games that he's involved with. I, I think building a side around him where he's consistently playing is was mistake number one, and it's it's foolish to think otherwise that you know he he can really make the difference for Everton going forward this season. I am shocked that the team that has three number tens passes the ball the most before it <laughs> shoots. Um, but then I, you know, I thought I looked at uh, Germany circa twenty ten with the World Cup and the 4-2-3-1 that they played. Because in my mind, the first thing that jumped into it was, okay, you've got Aaron Lennon, you've got Kevin Morales. There was reports fairly recently Morales was a player that was sent home for not trying properly. Um, so you would think, right, bit of pace, put them either side. Again, very English here. Um, but looking at that number, that uh, 2010 Germany side, you had Muller on the right, Podolski on the left, and then Ozil in the middle. Now, Muller's not a traditional winger. He's that very long German word that begins with R that I can't pronounce. Podolski, again, is not a typical winger. So I'm curious. You have to think at that point, maybe there's lessons they could learn from from that Germany team in 2010. But then at the same time, you have to caveat all that with that they don't have a number 10, the quality of, of Meza Ozil. Um, but yeah, they're just such a bizarre team, Everton. They seem so... They just do things in, in a very weird order. Um, yeah, and, and I think maybe to, to speak to the point that you're talking about there with, with Mesut Ozil and, and Thomas Muller is I think, you know, teams differ massively in the, in the way that they like to progress the ball. And I think that's really the issue for Everton here, like, like we're mentioning, is that they have a lot of number 10s and maybe players that have the ability to 
exude that kind of final third quality. The issue is progressing the ball. And if they don't have, if they're fullbacks who, you know, in some situations can be depended on progressing the ball forward are tasked constantly with, the, with you know, the threat of someone breaking on them relatively easily. If you look at the numbers, I think the majority of the, the progression for Everton falls to Idris Gay. And I think while he is an extremely talented player on the defensive side of the ball, Focusing the majority of your progression on a player like him is part of the problem that that Everton are facing right now, which is, you know, they they can't, they don't have so much output in attack because they're simply not getting the ball into the right areas quickly enough to make it to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's the most sickening thing of all is that if Everton are lacking ideas, their cross city rivals Liverpool are full of them. Well, They've got one that they're very sure on, let's put it that way. Um, and they go to Southampton, who uh, I would be neglecting my Lawrence McKenna school of hosting if I didn't mention that that's their feeder team. <laughs> Liverpool against Southampton at Anfield. Obviously, everything about this has been dominated by Virgil van Dijk and, and his appearance and the fact that he pushed so hard to get to Liverpool in the summer, but nothing came of it, which I think Southampton deserve a lot of credit for. And I was listening to something recently, I forget which podcast it was, but they spoke to Les Reed, and he basically said that we knew we had to kind of set a precedent. And, of course, the irony of all ironies is that when Liverpool finished trying to sign Virgil van Dijk, they then had to fend off Barcelona from doing the same with Philippe Coutinho. Amazingly, it does feel like Liverpool and Everton have a slightly similar problem, but for very, very different reasons. Because I was looking at the, the attacking group that Liverpool have got, and I was debating, I think, one of our listeners on, on Twitter this week about Salah, Firmino, Mane, Coutinho. Then you've got Chan, Henderson, Vinaldum. You've got six spots, realistically, because it's always a 4-3-3. But you've got a lot more than six players that could, stroke, should be in there. So who do you potentially drop and who do you potentially select? Probably better question is, who would you select tomorrow if you're picking your, your six players to, to sit in midfield and attack? It's a difficult one because... I just feel like so much of their... It's so like packing of, a suitcase, isn't it? You, I know. You it, always forget like you've left six pairs of pants and two pairs of socks on the bed. Which hopefully I don't do in my in my upcoming trip because I'm going to be very cold if not. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's difficult because they have so much attacking quality, as, as we've mentioned. But also, you know, they, they've really struggled to keep um, you know, Sadio Mane on the field. And he's such a a brilliant part of their team, not just going forward, but defensively in the way that he likes to catalyze the press. And and with him and Adam Lallana not seeing the field so much this season, or maybe as much as Klopp would have been, would have liked, I think you kind of have to choose, pick and choose these games with a degree, or with, with part of your mind looking at competitions that I think Liverpool can succeed in. And one of those is, is maybe the Champions League. And I think if you're going to save somebody's legs and still win this match. It's probably not selecting Mane right away because he has just come back from that hamstring injury. And, and I, from what I understand about hamstring injuries, it's, it's an overuse thing. And so I would rest him this game, and I, w- I would continue to maybe go with the 4-4-2 diamond that they've been, they've been known to play this season with, with Salah uh, and Firmino at the tip and then allow Coutinho to, to find his, his sort of rhythm in midfield because I think that's honestly a beautiful thing to watch if, if, if regardless of the, of the team that you support. So it, it's, 
it's it's still going to be a difficult game because I think Southampton have been extremely unlucky this season with how they finish chances. But if Liverpool play it correctly, then I you know I think it's a it's an open and shut case. I'm glad you mentioned Southampton though because Pellegrino is an interesting character to me because when he joined the club. David Cartledge, who is uh, very knowledgeable on on La Liga and all these things, uh, was very positive about the move. And usually when David is positive about something, uh, I invest my life savings in it because he knows what he's talking about. To look at Pellegrino, though, his time at Alaves, they weren't high scoring. Um, They did finish mid-table, but again, they weren't high scoring. I spoke to Ewan Dewar, I hope I'm saying his name right, on Twitter a few weeks ago about this. And he gave me a, a decent uh, one-on-one on the analytics of this. And basically, Southampton are doing everything but finishing chances. I know that sounds obvious, but in terms of attacking uh, analytics and metrics, they're doing everything right, whereas Alaves were not as uh, proficient in those areas. So their kind of lack of goal scoring was down to, to other factors. It wasn't down to poor finishing. Is it as simple as that? Is, it, is there something we're missing? Because, I mean, Dusan Tadic doesn't seem as impactful to me when I watch him. He seems like maybe his, not his legs are gone per se, but he's, he's just not got any positive momentum. Buffal is a curious one. It, it, is there anything that jumps out to you about Southampton that they can fix between now and Christmas? Because obviously come January, you can sign players. I mean, it's a difficult question with Southampton because of, I think the, the consistent managerial change, the, the consistent managerial changes have created problems for them that maybe they are not so adept or maybe really any club would not be so adept at dealing with because I think you know you you sign your record signing is Sofian Buffal who by all by all accounts is is brilliant on his own and 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 a really good uh, example of that is his solo goal a couple weeks ago versus West Brom but there are a couple players in there that have struggled to to make a consistent impact because of the attitude that they've had. And you mentioned Dusan Tadic there, and I have to imagine, you know, I remember when I w- used to watch them, uh, you know, last year under Puel, he was sort of castigated out to the to the side of the formation in a 4-5-1 because I think Puel was concerned about his defensive, uh, defensive contributions to the team. I think really the only character that's been consistently involved because of his work rate and I think genuine quality is Nathan Redmond. So I was having a conversation with um, Alex Stewart, one of the guys over at well, what used to be UMaxit and is now TFL, um, and we unanimously agreed, sort of being um, not Southampton supporters. I mean, he is, but I'm not. Uh, but having an affinity for the club nonetheless, that I think success for Southampton coincides with success for Nathan Redmond. And so I think the more that you get him on the ball and doing positive things for the team and linking up well with Manolo Gabbiadini, the more that we're going to see them finishing chances. Because as we've mentioned, they are doing a lot of things right. They're just not finishing the chances. But this has been a consistent problem for them over the past two years. So if it's a problem that has persisted for that long, then there might be something else to, to the problem. And I think part of that goes goes down to the idea that maybe they're not giving Nathan Redman enough freedom in, in the final third to some extent. Yeah, I, I was watching uh, Lawrence's and, and True Geordie's preview for this weekend and, and Lawrence dropped a stat, I hope I'm quoting this right, that Redmond has had the most shots without a goal in the Premier League this season, um, 
which I, I don't disagree with your take at all. Um, I just think there's something about Southampton that feels as if they've just they've hit a little bit of a, a plateau or a little bit of a rocky ground because you look at guys like Hoiberg who, again, are turning out for the, the under-23s or whatever the, the term is over in Southampton and he was someone who seemed like such a good signing at the time and it's, it's yeah, it's a thoroughly bizarre situation. There's a similarly bizarre situation going on at West Brom um, who welcomed Chelsea with Signor Pulis um, on the brink, supposedly. The the first time I think I've ever seen people really considering uh, his position, especially at West Brom. And he welcomes a Chelsea team that, again, you know, had a, a, a great result last time out. But there's the David Luiz situation, obviously. I, I assume you side with Conte on this one, that you think it was it was right to drop Luiz for this. And do you think he will come back for this game or not? Um... I mean, I, I, that's the thing about Conte is that I think, especially with the, the documentary that Lawrence put out last year, and I think you were involved with it as well, the, the troubling thing for me about Conte is that he seems to put his own, he seems to put his personal agenda and the relationships that he has with certain players above common sense. And I think that is perfectly sort of encapsulated in the sale of Nemanja Matic. There was nothing wrong with Nemanja Matic's performances or the way he played in Conte's team last year, the, the year that they won the title. And and yet he goes and sells him to to a to a, a you know a title rival and that made, you know, Manchester United so much better. They needed a player like Matic and, and especially one that has such a close relationship with Mourinho. And he's done similar things at Juventus. And I just you know, his, his, the way that he dealt with the Costa situation, it's difficult for me to back a manager that, you know, I get. You, sometimes you don't get along with players and you have to do certain things in order to keep a, a sense of, you know, your, your, your power over the team and your ability to influence your ideas in, in, in an effective way. But it just seems like that relationship is going that that relationship is going sour really quickly. And it's almost similar to the one, to the maybe the the mysterious situation that we saw with Mourinho a couple years ago when he was sacked at Chelsea. And I just don't understand why he can't be a little bit more flexible in the players that he decides to include or his tactical ideas or, or the way that he wants to run a club. I think he's so obsessed with having things his way that sometimes he lets that get in the way of making more common sense decisions, if that makes sense. It does, but then it... it... <sighs> That is the man, though, isn't it? That is Conte in, in a nutshell, is that he is so intense that he just demands this fierce loyalty. I mean, there's that you mentioned that documentary with uh, with Conte that Laws did uh, with Glenn and, and uh, the guys at TFR and the story of Buffon, you know, the the shaming him in public for, for not being focused in his eyes. And I, I do feel like he's got such frighteningly high standards that... The second somebody wavers from that, you're in trouble. But I am pleased to see Christensen getting a, a maintained run in the team. Amazingly, not a consistent start for Denmark, but is for, for Chelsea at the minute. And I think he's a very good footballer, first and foremost. And um, I was going to say anyone that John Terry backs is fine by me, but that's not what I mean. Um, but Terry was very complimentary about him when he was, was younger. Uh, by contrast, West Brom... They are not intense, you would argue. They are quite the opposite. Um, they are a little bit more passive in, in an attacking sense, at least. Are, are we 
are we asking too much for Pulis to to be something different from what we've you know become used to? Is 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 this a game where it's totally acceptable for him to sit off and and try and, and nick something, or do you think he actually has to go and and attack Chelsea? I think the perhaps the better question is if they lose this game, West Brom. Is this the point where you say, okay, well, look, Pulis isn't even giving us this. We need to, to move forward with someone else. Or is that too harsh a standard for him to be judged by? I think it's too harsh a standard. I, I, I commend Tony Pulis for a lot of the things that he's done at West Brom and other clubs because I think you know, he doesn't get enough credit for some of the things that he does uh, tactically. I, I, would be cur- I, know, I understand he's spent a, a good deal of money at, at some of the clubs that he's been at, but I would be curious to see what he could do with a higher caliber of player just in general. Um, I don't think he'll ever get that opportunity, but I don't think this game should have much should hold much weight in, in sort of determining his future at West Brom. That being said, I, I definitely think it's a winnable game for him because of Chelsea's weaknesses and inefficiencies and the the dynamic of the game that we're rolling, you know, we're, we're going into it. Um, because Chelsea will want to attack and they'll want to win. They'll want to impose themselves upon the opposition. And I think that provides a lot of space for Tony Pulis to enact the style that he's, you know, very good at enacting, which is generally defensive, maybe scoring off a off a headpiece or a, sorry uh not a headpiece but a set piece um i like maybe... headpiece <laughs> sounds much better and, and mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Maybe uh, maybe utilizing some of the players that have been attracted to the club because of him, like Nasser Chadley, um, on, on the counterattack. And I, I, I think... You know, while it's not completely unwinnable, like I said, I wouldn't really judge his time or 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 anything going forward based on this result. Mm. Unwinnable might be how Swansea City are feeling about their trip to Burnley. Uh, Sean Dyche, heavily linked with Everton, um, seen as the the poster child for young English managers at this precise moment. Um, what that says about English football, I'll I'll allow you to have your own interpretations on. But Swansea going to Burnley, I haven't even finished the sentence and the words that jump into my head are hard game, tough afternoon, be lucky to get a point um, because Burnley is a difficult place to go. When you're trying to attribute blame to Swansea, is it as simple as saying that it's Paul Clemens' fault? Because, again, I know he doesn't factor much in the discussion. The Bob Bradley situation, you know, the fact that he was perceived to be inept and all this kind of stuff. And yet, Clement has had a few transfer windows now. He's been able to put more of his ideas in. And yet, they don't look markably better 
than a few years ago. In fact, they look considerably worse, I would argue. And they've got players like Renato Sanchez who don't seem to fit in very well. Um, Tammy Abraham does, by contrast. But Sam Klukas, Rocky Mesa, their transfer policy almost mirrors Everton's, doesn't it? In so much as it's it's a little bit, uh, not so much disorganised, but stacked in the wrong avenues. Yeah, I mean... I think when you ask the initial question of who does the blame fall to, I struggle to find anyone outside of Paul Clement as far as I know because I have to imagine that he's had a say in some of the transfers that they made over the summer, and yet those players have yet to make a a considerable difference in, in their fate as a club. And I think specifically maybe speaking about someone that I was excited about in Roque Mesa, I imagined him as someone that would really make a difference in terms of playing that role of turning defense into attack for Swansea and yet he's done very little to really get onto the field first of all and then furthermore make an impact so and I've heard Paul Clement speak in press conferences about Rokamesa and maybe his lack of inclusion and it seems to be a, a something that it seems to be something that's affected largely by the relationship between him and the players that have come in recently and, and it doesn't seem to be a positive one so it's one of those things where perhaps it's the player's fault. Perhaps they're not trying hard enough. Perhaps they're not being professional in their attitude. And there was something with the transfer that they never wanted to happen in the first place. But if you know who you want and you get them to where you want them to be, and even then you can't find a use for them for whatever reason, it's difficult to escape that criticism for me, for Paul Clement. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that's the thing. Rocky Messer, to me, seemed the perfect Leon Britton replacement, didn't he? Yeah, 100%. And, and yeah, they went out and bought Sam Klukas as well, which I, I still don't understand. Like, a lot of people, he was linked to a few clubs, Newcastle being one of them, and a lot of people said, well, you know, he's versatile. He can play left-back and he can do all these things. I mean, that's great, but, you know, I don't need a portable television if I've got a big screen. There's no there's no need for that. Um, and, yeah, just a few of the signings. I mean, Luciano Narsing... Not a terrible player, but again, doesn't seem to have a, a huge future. When I saw, and, I'm, and I don't mean this as a slight on the, the boy in question, but when I saw Oliver McBurney playing noticeable minutes for them, someone who, again, the peak of his career so far is 3-3 three and three for Newport County and 10-4, and 4-10, four, uh, four excuse me, for Chester. That's not someone that I would think is, is ready for, for Premier League football. And it almost seems to me as if, Swansea have, have sort of lost the the organisation and the preparation that they had when they first came up. Guys like Jordan Ayew, who I appreciate could do the odd fun thing at at, uh, at Aston Villa, but his goals record for me was never sensational. Um, he was pretty much a one-in-three guy. And so, yeah, there's a few of those that, um, that don't really kind of sit so well. I mean, you could argue... On the other end of that spectrum is Burnley, because while they have spent, you know, considerably in the domestic market, they've had a lot of success. Robbie Brady, um, Jeff Hendrick being another one that's that's seemed to to find success at Burnley. Is there a point where Daesh has to become a bit more comfortable in the the European market for you if he's going to progress? I think so, um, because obviously, as you mentioned at, at the top of sort of the preview. He has been mentioned or has been heavily linked to the Everton job. And I think if you 
too, far too much i think is sometimes is, is is judicated to the job of the manager in some sense and one of the greatest things maybe that sir alex ferguson talked about in terms of his managerial spell was that you know his, his ability to um what is it yeah delegate well um is, is as much part of the job as anything else and i think he has to become more comfortable with perpetuating different styles of football if he's going to take that that leap up to a different level of club um and everton would definitely be that leap um and as i mentioned before on the podcast i think the 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 evolution of a manager goes hand in hand with an evolution of their philosophy and i think if he were to perpetuate the same style of football that he has at burnley that he has it at uh if he were to get the job at everton then that wouldn't necessarily be the same viewed as the same success um as his time at Burnley has so yeah I, I think he has to become more proficient with doing all sorts of things and, and one of those is is being more proficient in the market yeah I would agree with that I would definitely agree with that obviously Arsenal Tottenham is the big one we'll get to that in a second the last one it's actually the one we started with Bournemouth against Huddersfield Huddersfield for me are a fascinating prospect away from home um, because the first time I saw them and I've told this story so many times because it makes me look good was away at St James's Park, um, and they were very good that day. And this Bournemouth side, I mean, you know, fair play they won last time out against Newcastle. Had a real Jekyll and Hyde performance um, at St James's Park. Did not start well, but then in the second half came into things. If you're if you're pitching, I know gambling is illegal in the US. If you're pitching five dollars on one team here, is is there one that jumps out, or do or do you see it being a much tighter affair than than perhaps that? No, I think Huddersfield stands out. Uh, they've been consistent with their idea of football, and although they've lost heavily because of it sometimes against maybe some of the, the, the teams that are higher up the table, uh, Bournemouth are in a bad position. I think it's, it's not just because of the style of football that they want to play. I think it's partially because of the organization. Um, and maybe Eddie Howe has hit a, a bit of a, a rough patch in terms of how he likes to play his style of football with this current ever or with this current Bournemouth team sorry and I, I think I just think right now that Huddersfield are are way more confident in what they're doing and, I, and I've spoken to that in terms of I, I think that the players when they come out in, in, in interviews and talk about the confidence that a manager can give them I think largely in some situations it's not just down to maybe Mourinho inspiring a, a certain element of of um of confidence in his own personal ability as maybe he did with like Frank Lampard or something like that. But I think the the players, for example, at Manchester City that can that can speak to the confidence that Pep Guardiola has given them is not because, you know, he's come up come over to them and said, you know, you're great. It's because he has given them a blueprint for what they should be doing in every single situation on the pitch. And I think when you have that confidence in the game plan of what you're doing, then you can perform better as a player on the field and I think that that's true with Huddersfield is that David Wagner has coached these these players very well and and they know what they're doing in the majority of the instances that that they have that you know they've been coached to to perpetuate on the field and and that shows with the with the results this season I wholeheartedly agree with that um for those who patiently waited Arsenal Tottenham is now upon us it is how we start the weekend what a way to start a weekend by the way 12 30 um I feel sorry for you that that is what seven thirty Eastern seven thirty a.m. 
7.30 Eastern, 4.30 on the West Coast. I know we have a lot of American listeners. <laughs> Those that is people. farcical. That 4.30 in the morning. I love football, but I'll genuinely admit there are times I struggle to get up for the 12 o'clock kickoff. <laughs> so the thought of getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning is obscene. But if you're going to do it for any game, Arsenal-Tottenham seems like a good one. I found the pre-match for this fascinating, and I've taken in a variety of different previews, including uh, Piers Morgan and Alton Sugar. Uh, sorry, Sir Alan Sugar, Lord Alan Sugar, whichever one he is. Um, and also Troops and another chap that I didn't recognise. Um, and it seems as if Tottenham are a little bit more optimistic or confident. Not arrogant, confident about this, even though Alderweireld is missing, which means that Dyer probably slots in. Do you share their confidence going into this or will that only come maybe when you see the starting lineups? No, I definitely share their confidence because I think... Um, and as as I started to write something about Arsenal this week, I think the majority of their problems are highlighted by something that we've probably spoken about to death, which is you know Arsene Wenger's lack of modern uh, practices and in, in, in tactics. And I think that is perfectly sort of represented by by Tottenham and the style that they've become successful with, which is pressing. And I think regardless of whether the game takes on a dynamic of defense versus attack or whether it's relatively open in the midfield, I am confident in Tottenham's ability to impose themselves regardless of the situation. I think if they can dominate possession, there are plenty of avenues in which they can deconstruct Arsenal in terms of maybe you know they can compact the formation and, and use the passing ability of Jan, Jan Vertonghen or, or possibly even Eric Dyer if he plays in that back three to, to supply the likes of Harry Kane, who will be fit for this match. Um, if, it, if it's more of a 50-50, then, you know, as we as David and I have spoken about before on this podcast and possibly disagreed on, is, you know, that, that flexibility of someone like Eric Dyer to come into the formation and step in and out of, of the back line, maybe in the midfield creating a diamond. I, I have full confidence in, in Tottenham's ability to impose themselves in that situation. And if they have to be a bit more defensive, I mean, then that's definitely not a problem. So I, I would... I am supremely confident in Tottenham's abilities, but at the same time, I see that this is one of those games that is really difficult to predict because the Arsenal players, regardless of, of the narrative or, or the situation surrounding Arsene Wenger, this is a huge game from an emotional standpoint. And I, I think maybe an anecdote from my personal life can, can illuminate maybe how players value certain games over another because senior year I played uh, lacrosse and and we were fortunate enough to be in in the state uh, championship and I remember you know it was going to be the last time I ever played for for my high school team and obviously we wanted to win the state championship because the the year before we had lost in the state finals Um, and I remember I was just so switched on that day there was no one that was going to get past me in every situation there was no one that did get past me because I played in in a more defensive role um, and I was just, I was more hyped up than I had ever been in my life. And, and that element of concentration, maybe as you talked about earlier with the article that, you know, you can hold concentration for only about 35 minutes. I, I felt like, you know, I was superhuman to some extent because there was such intrinsic motivation. And while the, maybe the, the stakes are a little bit higher with, with Arsenal Tottenham in some sense, um, I think, I think those players view that game as, as sort of their final, you know, they, they, it's not just about, you know, the bragging rights of the clubs. It, it's, it's it's a it's an element of personal pride for those players because of what they represented as as professionals. Yeah, I'll, I think I think that's a, a good way to look at it. I mean, this does feel you know the funny thing is that there's a 
a pressure on both of these managers in very different ways because obviously Pochettino is he hasn't won a trophy blah 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 I get that right fine but with Wenger every game of even sort of remote importance and I mean Tottenham's right up there because it's you know it's the the noisy neighbours stuff and all that but I just feel like in the immediate there's so much more pressure on Wenger here than there is on Pochettino because you've got to think he needs to start Lacazette because if he doesn't then you know that that's going to get thrown at him why did you buy a 50 million pound striker just to put him on the bench you need a big performance from Sanchez who probably isn't that motivated you need Meza Ozil to perform and against a team that I would argue is not ideal for him. Um, I think he likes a little bit more time, a little bit more space to play in, and I don't think Spurs will give him that. Um, and you also need Xhaka to be on his game. And there was, I think it was the Telegraph, um, Alistair Tweedale did a, a series of stats or like a bit of a stats dump. Um, and one of them was a little bit misleading. It said that Jacker had made the most misplaced passes this season, but he'd also attempted the most, I think, at the same time. So it was it was a little bit of false advertising. I just feel like Winks against Jacker, that's going to be a fascinating battle to watch in the middle of midfield. Because I mean, you know, you could you could argue it embodies the the best thing about Tottenham and maybe where Arsenal have gone a little bit wrong this these last few years, in the sense that Tottenham have produced Winks. Whereas Zaka has cost thirty-five million, and even with the maddening price hikes we've seen, Pogba costing eighty-nine million, De Bruyne costing however much, it doesn't look worth thirty-five million to me just yet. And he's not—you know—the thing that surprises me the most, he's not a young man. Um, I mean, I don't know if I can say that as a twenty-nine-year-old, um, but he's he's twenty-five, so he's not a kid anymore. He's he's edging closer towards what you would think is his peak but he still seems to make childlike mistakes and that concerns me um, because I don't think he can do that in central midfield I think it'll be a fascinating game either way um, and yeah it will it, it's great if you're a City or a United fan because theoretically one of them is well in fact one of them potentially both of them is going to lose points um, we then change pace drastically on Sunday we have Watford West Ham which is oof, David Moyes back in the, the dugout, the trenches, um, the mortuary, depending on how you view David Moyes. Uh, has he got even a chance against uh, Silva? Because Silva does seem like the golden child of the Premier League at the minute. Everyone seems to love him. Everybody wants him. Um, and you would argue because of that, it should be a fairly simple game for Watford, no? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think... Um as Dave and I have spoken about on this podcast before, I think the, the, just the, the, the modern nature of, of how football is played in terms of the roles of certain players and how you organize yourself as a team has simply gone past David Moyes. And, and regardless of whether you appoint him or the council of, of managers that are supposed to be helping out at, at West Ham, I just don't see how he could get his any semblance of, of a complete or competent idea over to the to the West Ham players in enough time uh, in, in terms of the in regards to the the play of this game that that would be able to stop the Watford team that has been pretty good this season. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I like this Watford team. I don't I don't think Will Hughes is getting enough opportunities, but then at the same time, I don't know. I don't believe he's better than what's in front of him. Um, but it has been interesting to see. Watford's change of uh, tact 
the fact that they've brought Andre Gray, I know they brought Richarlison, who is a, a foreign player, and this is by no means a, a national uh, a, a national front uh, debate here. But yeah, the fact that they've got Gray, Cleverly, Hughes, it does seem as if they're trying to get a little bit more of an English core to them um, than in previous seasons. West Ham, again, you, you almost put them in that Everton-Swansea bracket of, yes, you've spent money, but you've done it in some thoroughly bizarre ways. Marco Arnautovic has to be the standout when you think of that list. Um, is there anything drastic that you would change here if you if you were David Moyes, or would you just whack Carroll up top and and let Lanzini do what he has to do in number ten and hope that Arnautovic can be disciplined? It's I mean it's really tough to say what what one should do in, in in the case of West Ham because I think as you mentioned they've they've spent their money in such a weird way that you get that feeling and I think you mentioned this a while ago with Sunderland that. There are certain teams that have gone down in the Premier League. I think one that springs to mind is the Aston Villa team of a few years ago. That the the, yeah. the collection of players just doesn't. It feels like exactly that a collection of players, a group of like mercenaries that have just shown up and they don't really have a clear and consistent identity uh, of being a team. And I that to me that rings true with this West Ham team. It seems like some of the players are on their very you know, very long way out, uh, not very long away from, but rather they're at the very end stage of their career and they're almost about to leave, so they really don't care what happens on the pitch. And then some of them are trying to prove themselves to, you know, find themselves in, in a different situation in terms of leaving the club. And then others, you know, it, it's just a, a bit of a weird situation. And I, regardless of, of maybe the tactical things that I would do differently to David Moyes or Slavin Bilic or whoever... I just, it's difficult to imagine success for a team that has that kind of identity inherently thrust upon it with the, with the attitude of the players. Yes, I, I struggle to to disagree with uh, with any of that, and that takes us nice and neatly on to to Monday, Brighton against Stoke. Brighton are a funny one for me. Chris Chris Hutton, lovely gentleman, uh, real one of the game's nicest people going and I think you'll struggle to find anyone who says otherwise um, but his teams are not the most expansive I know firsthand from Newcastle I know Norwich fans say similar that they came a point where it just you know it wasn't pretty and to be fair I've seen similar from Brighton this season they haven't been um, you know that forward thinking shall we say but they host Stoke City who again are in a funny time friend of the show Elliot Hackney lovely lad great footballer he is a lovely um, guy yeah, honestly, it's, I struggle to think with you know what he's better at, being a human or being a footballer, um, because he is instrumental for London City FC. If you're not watching that, by the way, Next Level League, get on it. Um, big things coming. We're looking to try and do a Leicester City, um, which is finish near the bottom and then win the Blumen thing the next <laughs> season. But Elliot has been frustrated of late with Hughes um, for what he perceives as almost an arrogance and an unwillingness to admit that you know, maybe he's not as, as rosy as things uh, he likes to paint. Looking at their form, guy, it's not the greatest either. I mean, they had that draw with Leicester, obviously. They did beat Watford away the week before. But then you have defeats at home to Bournemouth, away to City, a win at Southampton, and then defeats to Chelsea, Bristol City, and then Newcastle United. Is there a concern here for, for Stoke? Because I wrote last time out um, that I feel as if the the wing-back formation he's persisting with is probably not the best way to go about this because they just don't have wing-backs, to be frank. Mamabiram Juf 
has been playing on the right and he's a forward and on the left they've been using Eric Peters who he's a defender he's a he's a fullback nothing more yeah I would certainly agree with that it seems to me when I've watched Stoke in this system it's more of a perpetuation of an idea that he thinks is like the right one but he doesn't actually have the players to to accurately or or competently put forward you know what I mean and I think that the points that you've made there about Eric Peters and uh, specifically Diof which you know I don't blame the players for this I blame the manager and putting these players in a position where you know he says you have to operate as wingbacks even though you have very little to no experience and I I would echo and, and certainly understand the frustration that that the you know that you said Elliot had um in terms of uh you know the the frustration with Mark Hughes because I've heard that from about a million Stoke fans. I think he has a certain degree of arrogance that you know this is the way that I'm going to do things, and he has a, a very persistent um, idea of what he wants to do, but it's not necessarily the right thing to do. And it can be, it's very understandable to be frustrated because Stoke have not moved in in, in a couple of mm-hmm. years. They they have no they've shown no sign. Well, they've shown no signs of of maybe regressing and, and going more towards the bottom. They've shown no signs of progressing and doing anything more and you have to imagine that situation that if you're if you have the quality and the ability to stay in the same place especially in a league that's as competitive as the premier league then you certainly have the quality and the ability to do the right things to to move forward a little bit or at least do something instead of just saying stagnant so i would certainly understand it and and maybe reflect um the the criticism of of mark hughes because I i think it's completely valid yeah, and they've regressed, if anything. They've a few ninth-place finishes, and then they dropped down to, I think, 12th, 13th. On the other side of things, Brighton have a much more set and defined identity that seems to fit them as a group of players. But at the same time, Pascal Gross, um, I think he was signed from Ingolstadt in the Bundesliga, where he was billed as an incredibly creative player there as well. He's been the main uh, assist maker, if you will, for them this season. Is it as simple as stopping them? I mean, Knockout hasn't looked as good. I know he won Championship Player of the, the Season, but he hasn't really transitioned um, to the Premier League that well. But Glenn Murray has. He's found the net quite well. Is there any concern with you that, that Brighton are, for want of a better phrase, a one-man team? Or, or over-reliant on certain players, shall we say? Definitely. I think if there was an injury, injury to Pascal Gross or perhaps even uh, Canuck Hart, who I understand maybe hasn't um, transitioned that well to the Premier League, but for you know it isn't certainly for a lack of effort. I've, I think there was a little bit of a Premier League special where they were sort of honing in on Brighton and, and Chris Hewton, and there was a, a specific moment where I think Canuck Hart was on the, the, the verge of tears after um, I think it was their 3-3 draw earlier this season or something like that and and so you know he's a, he's a player that certainly cares uh, about the the performance of not only himself but the team um but yeah i i certainly think there's a bit of an over-reliance in terms of their their attacking output on someone like gross um and regardless of the things i said about uh stoke in 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 the last section i, I do think that this is a game that I, that they will win because it seems strange but in, in certain in certain instances Mark Hughes has the ability to to clearly uh, understand and define what his team should do and, and come away with a with a concise victory. And I think against a team that maybe aren't as creative uh, or don't have the ability to be creative in, in these attacking situations, I think a Stoke team um, that have a variety of ways in which they can attack can can win a game against against Brighton. Mm, yeah, I agree with that. 
Briefly on the the World Cup, obviously people have discussed this to to the end. Any team particularly that you're going to miss? I imagine the US is is high on your list, but Definitely Italy. The US. Um, yeah, I mean, as much as I feel for Italy, I just you know, I, I the US has been such an interesting prospect in the past couple of years, and they're sort of an unknown quantity. I mean, we kind of know what we're going to get from Italy. If I if they did. If they did qualify, I, I think what I was going to talk about was, I think, the perpetuation of a continued defensive style. And that's great and all, but, you know, the U.S. is such a wild card that I think so much of this era of U.S. men's soccer, which has now been, you know, re- has now regressed a little bit because of the lack of a World Cup qualification, is, is so much of their our development as, as a nation in terms of our footballing identity is down to this period in time. And... I just I, I think they make the the tournament a little bit more exciting, so I'm sad to to see them not there as well as being a citizen of them. Mm, yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that. Italy, another one, it's uh, incredibly sad, and yet at the same time, I don't think personally things are as terrible as people make out. I think Ventura has to take a heavy level of responsibility on that one, even though he wasn't uh, so willing to resign. But then, you know, let's be honest, it's a pension pot for for someone in his position it's Q&A time now though uh, as I dust off the questions um, the first one is from Kyle Parr and I'm going to throw it to you which is will Lukaku and Zlatan work good together or well together hmm. will they play together I mean that, will they work the... well together if you were to throw if you were to put them together would it work I don't think so because I, I think so much of I think the criticisms of Lukaku that I've heard from not not even from fans but from managers and maybe they didn't even t- intend for it to be a criticism but you know he he doesn't necessarily get involved in 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 the build up play he he's not that type of player he he's a type of striker that you can feed and, and offer a certain degree of service to in the box and and he will do very well to finish those chances but I think and, and I I sort of think that Zlatan is is a similar type of player because he's really not that mobile of a striker so if you have two of those in the same team I can't imagine that they play together and when I saw Lukaku come in um, I mean I just imagine that Zlatan was part of Manchester United and he had signed that one-year contract extension because of his presence in the locker room his experience in winning league titles his experience as a winner and his experience as a player under Mourinho as well as you know offering a a little bit of rotation for a Manchester United that probably wants to compete across four competitions I don't think that we'll see them playing together all that often because of the similarity of their styles Mm. so yeah I I think that's fair I'd be very surprised if Mourinho named two strikers anyway to be honest knowing uh knowing what we do about him. I think the uh, more likely combination is maybe, and I think this is something that was touched on um, by the actual Premier League. I saw a video that they made about it. Um, is is Rashford and Lukaku. I think that, that partnership is one to look out for in terms of their, their club future going forward. Yeah, which makes the uh, Zlatan signing a bit of a curious one in that sense because you wonder where he fits in because he's not going to want to sit on the bench all the time. But they have got more competitions to consider. Um, speaking of pundits and videos, that was an atrocious segue. James Halloran says, are there any pundits who you used to hate but have now grown to like? <sighs> one of them's got a YouTube channel. 
Hey, <laughs> kidding. Um, I've always liked house. Do you? Do you, do you let, why don't you answer this one then, and then you can come back to me. Genuinely, uh, there's no one actually that I dislike that I now like. The ones that um, I enjoy, guys like Henri uh, Neville, I've always enjoyed. I didn't always think that Henri justified because he was on a good wage at Sky. I think he still is on a couple of million a year, which I thought you know that could be not better invested but you know they could pay less and then use that money some of that money more efficiently um but no i think for the most part yeah um i think the the they're all good i I think that's the beauty of it when you when you take people's stuff in when you give it the time um you slowly start to understand what they're trying to do and then i think you you realize very quickly whether someone has insight i mean the first first few times i met dave if if you stand from a distance with dave you just think my god that's just numbers that's a scene from the matrix but when you get up close you realize okay there's there's a lot in here and it's given a more context so yeah i don't i don't think there's anyone that i've uh, openly disliked and and then grown to love i think it's it's a little bit marmite things like that with pundits you either like them or you don't any anyone jump out for you or not no i would completely echo that answer i i you know i i would completely agree with what you just said <laughs> Speaking of pundits, John Shin, who I believe has his own YouTube channel, um, subscribe, click the link, all that stuff that I hear them say at the end of videos. With 32 teams now locked in for the World Cup, who are you backing to shine? Early guesses for a 2018 champion. I think France and Germany jump out to me. Spain as well. Um, Those are my favourites to be up there. Dark Horse's you know let's not even talk about that now we 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 haven't even shone a light on that aspect but yeah i think those teams will be um prevalent towards the back end of the competition anyone that i haven't mentioned there that you think is is likely to be there or thereabouts or even a champion that jumps out to you i would i would echo your your thoughts of france and and um and germany but at the same time i i've been looking forward for so long um as to what argentina will do so I think despite their tumultuous yeah. qualifying campaign, I think they will be able to do something special, or at least I hope so, as well as uh, Spain. I, I think Spain will do well. Yeah, I think I think you're, you're right there. Um, RPM asked, how do you rate Belgium's chances? Not great, I'll be very honest, because I don't rate um, Roberto Martinez. I think he's a, a very nice guy. I think he's actually a very good analyst. To, to reference one of the previous <laughs> questions there. Um, but I think when it comes to a coach, no, not for me. I think you look at the exclusion of uh, Raja Nyangolan, that is a great window into to what is wrong with Belgium at the minute, is that they just, for whatever reason, that country got rid of Mark Wilmot and said, you know what, we need another <laughs> ambiguous, <laughs> tactically ambiguous coach who may be able to get us playing nice stuff or may orchestrate a tire fire um, in our national team. Uh, Jack Meiji gets a big thumbs up from me for asking a question. There's a blatant reference to the office, which is, will there ever be a boy born that can swim faster than a shark? Um, Cameron asks, will we ever discover an alien that is more obsessed with stats than Statman Dave? I don't think so. I don't think I so think either. The way... You know, the funny thing is, and I don't think listeners will appreciate this, if you go for dinner with Dave, he is so similar to how he is on this podcast in the way that he discusses football that it is frightening. 
So you will be having a conversation and he will drop in stats with the same regularity as if he was trying to convince you um, that Daily Blind is the second coming of Dennis Irwin. Uh, <laughs> any other questions? That's, oh, yes, Jared, this is a very good question. Can we comment on the relocation of Crew SC? Um, and he references MK Dons here. I think that's a, a great comparison, first and foremost, because, again, it's it's a team moving that doesn't really want to move. Um, it's its owner that is pushing this forward. Uh, Precourt is is the chap's name, Anthony Precourt. I don't like it personally, um, and I'll not take too much of the mic time up on this because Nico's obviously American and has a greater stake in it than I. But I just think it's disruptive to MLS. Um, and and from a business standpoint, it also tells every expansion franchise why bother paying the exorbitant 150 million dollar fee when you can buy a team and then move it to wherever you feel like. Um, so yeah, I'm not a huge fan of it. Do you have any strong opinions on it, Nico, as, as an American? No, I, w- I would I would echo your your thoughts there. I, I think it's you know I I like how like, a lot of the community like has... Pence, Trump talking to each other. Yeah, I mean it, I it's... say stuff and then you say you echo it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but you know you say you say the right stuff a lot of the time. So how can I disagree with that? But um, yeah, I I completely agree with what you're saying, and I, I like how the community has sort of rallied around um, Columbus, and and there's been a sort of a lot of solidarity. Uh, in the community with not mm. only the club, you know, obviously the club has has its issues, but but the fans of the club and how important that is to, to certain people. Because as we've discussed on the podcast before, you know, whether you enjoy the elements of football or, or really any sport um, to the analytical or uh, tactical or statistical level that some of us do, or you're more involved with maybe the tribalistic approach or, or what is it? Um, desire to, to, to support a football team, there is validity in all of that and it should be respected. Uh and, and in this case it, it isn't, you know? Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um There's a good question just uh, saying someone asked let me look at who asked this. I see Andrew Passaro, friend of the show. Yes asked better national show. team, US men's national team or Ireland. I think US men's national team. You think, um, you think better? I think yeah, I, th- I think I don't think Ireland have a player that's on Pulisic's level, just for argument's sake. And I know it's not; a, it's an eleven-man game or play game. Mm-hmm. But you look at Weston McKenney as well; he's playing at a very high level. I, I think, think if I were to look at the because Alex Moss, which is the other guy on the Ghost Cold podcast, which is a great podcast, go go listen and subscribe to it. Um, I think maybe the the more of the the question that they were trying to ask. Because the, the Alex's response to the question was that, you know, keep in mind that you, the U.S. did not qualify in one of the two spots. And he mentioned the, the teams in, in contention for those uh, qualification spots in, in relation to the U.S. And then how uh, Ireland qualified in a, in a group that was much more difficult to do. So I think in that sense, I, I don't think they were necessarily talking about the, the quality of player, but rather maybe uh, how the organization was run. Ah, uh, Right. Uh, in that sense, yeah, then Ireland win that one um, fairly fairly easily. Uh, Big Brandon P. asks, oh, Sorry, go dude. ahead, fire away. I was going to say, Brandon asks, what are your thoughts on the possible second tier World Cup? Terrible idea. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah, don't. Yeah. 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 Don't, um, don't. yeah, don't do that. Big P has a question that might divide us, uh, but we'll see. Okay. Uh, it's at Aiden Henney, so I don't know if that's his actual name, but does Liverpool have a chance to make it deep into the Champions League? 
Ooh, from an attacking standpoint, yes. Uh, from a defensive standpoint, I think definitely not. Um, yeah, I, do, I just don't think they've got the quality. What I do think, if if the, this trend continues for the rest of the group stages, I do think this might be the year we see one of the aspiring elite win the competition. And I've voiced this before, that someone like a City or a PSG, they've started this competition with a lot more fluency. Now, the, the thing that maybe goes against them is the fact that this is a long competition. I think people forget that sometimes. You've got a few month break, so you've got all those games, you know, when you're uh, in your domestic leagues, you, some of your cup competitions start then and domestically. And so by the time you come back from February, you can be a totally different team, both positive and negative. Um, and I think that's what makes me a little bit hesitant from from proclaiming that it's definitely going to happen. But I, what I would say at this point, if it continues to the rest of the group stages, don't be surprised if this is the year that, that a PSG or Man City takes the competition. I would say I I would slightly agree with that, but I think um, you know maybe more historic teams of the past have a good shot of winning it. It's still very early on in the year, but I think in terms of Liverpool, I think they do have a good chance if you know the luck of the draws go their way. I think if they are able to emulate the Jurgen Klopp, Borussia Dortmund teams of the past that were brilliant defensively in terms of enacting that style and not being so aggressive and how they want to attack teams, and like mm-hmm. obviously I think what would help that. Um, what would help them maybe specifically Klopp go towards that approach to a game would be if I, I think it'd honestly be better if, for them if they drew like a big team early on in the competition uh, uh, you know I don't know I don't want to say a Real Madrid but you know you know the type of sides that I'm sort of talking about maybe a Bayern Munich or something like that and because then they could just be purely defensive and I think as a side like that they could be really uh, devastating on the counterattack, and and that would really help uh, go further in the competition. Yeah. Um, LFC commentary. I'm trying to find his question. He asked us, how frequently do you go to non-league football? Um, obviously, it's a bit different for you there because the pyramid is structured slightly differently. Um, but like USL, for example, things like that. Do you attend many games that aren't uh, professional or, or anything like that? Or is that not really possible? Uh, it's possible. I just don't have that all that much of an interest in, in doing that in terms of spending my disposable income and in, in going to non-league games. But I have been before. It's been an enjoyable experience. Speaking to to someone that um, to someone that is a devout supporter of maybe lower league, not necessarily non-league, but lower league football in Nippon. I think there is a certain sense of community that is missing from maybe some of the elements of modern society you know how you can you know you, you can spend all all day online technically if, if you really wanted to and have a somewhat a, some semblance of a social experience and um you know maybe that wasn't possible 50 years ago so some of the things and some of the places that we might have encountered human interaction more frequently have been taken away and i think non-league football or lower league football in the usl or usl pro or nasl um, provides a sense of community for people that genuinely live close to one another. Um, so I think in that sense, it's, it's important. And it, it can be fun to do that because I know Nipun speaks very highly of the fan culture that surrounds the team that he supports, which is uh, Indy 11, which is an Indianapolis uh, football team. Yeah, but I think it's important to differentiate between non-league and, and lower league. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not surprised that no metrics, no morales. Um <laughs> If there's no analytics, you're not interested. Um, no, I'm being facetious. <laughs> I I do 
go to non-league sporadically. I wouldn't say there's a team I actively follow. Um, there are some non-league teams. Durham City um, are oh, division of the and I think Evo Stick or something like that. And to be fair, the North East in general has a, a really high standard um, at that level. Um, I think there's a there's a lot of good players playing in that league um, or those leagues, excuse me. And it, you, you'll see it come across when things like the FAVs or VARs come to um, their conclusion. There's a lot of North East winners in there. Uh, I think Whitley Bay won it a few years ago. I'm, try, I'm trying to think of the more recent winners. Their name is escaping me. Um, but yeah, we've we've had some winners of that recently. And it's, it's, it's a different type of football. Not not stylistically, um, more in terms of the experience you get from it because you take it in in a different way. So yeah, it's 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 definitely worth it. I'm trying to see if there's one last question just to tie this over. Couple good ones. Um, maybe you, you you choose the final. I'll give you some options on the final question. Um, there's a good one from Lewis Brown, who who asks. You know, uh, I, I don't have the question right in front of me, but I do remember it where he says, uh, what kind of formation would we play if instead of in, if instead if it was um, 11 players as opposed... Or if it was 12 players as opposed to 11 players? Um, there's Two goalkeepers. Easy. I said that too. That was the first thought I had. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, then Jay James asks, what music do we all listen to? Oh, God, yeah. That's, that's far too long. Oh, and then there's... Um, okay, this one is good from Carlos, actually. What would be your Carlos Aldivar, friend of the show? Uh, what would be your approach if and when you have a child regarding supporting a football club? Wow. Would you simply make him support your club, simply persuade him to, or try and not have any influence on who he picks and encourage him to pick by himself? Uh, knowing how passionate a Barcelona fan Carlos is, I feel like I know his answer. Um, the thing is with me, I'll I'll probably not be living in Newcastle when I have kids. I'll be in New York. Um, so there's a good chance that any future children I have will gravitate to whichever is the more prominent English team. Um, or even, you know, Red Bulls, City. There's a lot of uh, variables mixed in there. You won't pass down the, the curse of, of supporting from, a Newcastle team? From kids. my experience... Um, from my experience, it's never it never works if you force it. Um, I mean, that's just good life advice. Um, but good sex advice too. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's what I was alluding to. Um, but yeah, for me, the my dad didn't push Newcastle onto me at all. Um, I discovered it. Uh, I think he had a sweatshirt or something like that with a badge on, and I was curious as to what it was. Um, and then just by proxy. I became a Newcastle fan. And I think that's the best way to do it. Because I think if you force it on them, then if anything, they're probably just going to gain a contempt for the game itself. I think for, from my experience, the guys I know that, that didn't enjoy football or didn't like really develop a passion for it, it was usually because it was kind of thrust upon them. And I think you have to nurture things like that naturally. And look, sometimes it's not always going to be something that they're interested in. And there's a good chance that my kids will have no interest in football. But that's that is the way that life is my dad i think got quite lucky that both his kids love football and yet actually saying that my brother is very indifferent about uh the premier league indifferent about newcastle prefers to watch dortmund and things like that um so yeah it's it's curious how that works but it's a, a good question and a lovely way i think 
to end the pod. I assume you would just thrust Man City on your children. <laughs> no, we we are agreeing a lot today. Uh, that's actually the exact answer I would have. I think in my experience, the things that maybe my parents tried to force me to like or like themselves so they wanted me to like it did not uh, end up leaving me with the best taste in my mouth in terms of liking those those things. So I think whatever your kid naturally gravitates towards, you should just try to try to nurture and maybe find a connection with them there because sometimes it can be difficult to have that connection with your kid later on. You'll not be saying that when Uncle Dave brings him a United shirt. Um, <laughs> but yes, that is a wonderful way, I think, to, to end things on this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for staying with us. Um, because, you know, it's the two of us. It's not the, the usual four or five piece. And uh, your support, your questions, all that stuff is massively appreciated because this car doesn't run without the fuel that is the listeners. Um, enough soppiness. Enjoy your football. Enjoy the weekend. And we shall see you soon. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 